This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. We're in conversation with a Harvard-trained scientist, physician, and serial entrepreneur by the name of David Buck. Comes from a family of prominent scientists. His father, Fritz, is widely credited with inventing bone marrow transplantation. That's the fellow you introduced me to the other day. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Completely unassuming. His mother was a renowned biochemist. He himself is a trained scientist and doctor, but he chose a different path. He didn't get into the medical profession per se. After spending a decade working on his own mental performance, he is actually autistic. He created a company called Optius, one of the many companies that he's created, formerly Platypus Neuro, to bring scientific rigor and create commercial applications, that's the key thing, in the rapidly expanding neuroperformance space. Right. He has built several companies, the smallest of which became a $100 million enterprise. His latest business endeavor, Leprechaun LLC, was for one year the fastest growing company in the US, generated a 90 times cash on cash return for investors. And he attended Harvard College and Harvard Medical School. He's also a competitive martial artist and a professional cellist. So he's a pretty impressive, pretty impressive individual. So that's, those are the credentials there. His latest company, Optius, makes the following promise. What if you could truly unlock your brain's potential? How would it change your life? Using proprietary AI-based neurotechnology, Optios helps the world's most elite performers unlock their brain's exponential capacity and optimize their performance. Okay. That's so, a heck of a clean that. It is. He's in Dubai to explore the possibility of establishing a presence for Optios in the Middle East. And we're talking all things neuroperformance. Now, I wasn't really clued in on that. So I had to go right back to the beginning and get back to basics. And David was very kind enough to do that for me. But he wrote this in an article that he wrote for a website called worth.com. It's December 2025. Yeah. You have a critical meeting in an hour and you need to be at the top of your game. But something's off. Your thinking's fuzzy. You're nervous, discombobulated. Breaking away here. We've all been there. Yeah, we've all been there. Every single day. For oh, daily <laughs> every, every time the mics go up on this show, that's how I feel. You snap on your portable brain monitor and it confirms your brain fog score is seven. You tell the device, I need to get in the zone. Dial me in. Three minutes later, after an intensive cognitive intervention, you're there at your mental peak and you nail it in the meeting. Yeah, you've got me sold. Tell me more. Right. I want to know more on this. Okay, right. So what does this all mean? What is it going to look like 10, 15 years from now? How will neuroperformance potentially affect our everyday lives? It's a $15 billion industry now. Venture capitalist investment is pouring in at an exponential rate. Three sectors are driving it. Three of the most competitive sectors, military, sports, and finance. Of course. But the reason it's primed to take off, explained David, is due to advances in, you guessed it, AI. AI. You can almost think of neuroscience or neuroperformance as one of the many branches of AI. Because what's really happening is these AI tools give you the ability to take huge amounts of data and, and make sense of them in ways you never could before. And then that capability, in turn, is affecting a lot of different industries. And so when we put sensors on the head and we look at the brain signals coming out, we're getting 22 million data points per hour per person. And so until computers and AI got powerful enough, we couldn't make sense of that. And so because of AI, all of a sudden, I can take a computer, read your brain, and I can tell what's going on in your brain, but 
no human smart enough to do it, but the AI, AI just makes a map. And so we can look into your brain, putting a couple sensors on it with incredible precision. And that, of course, opens up a whole universe of capability. Some serious questions will be asked yeah. of me, Rob. <laughs> yeah. I, I made that point. Do you want I made that to? point slash joke. I was like, I hope no one puts a sensor on my brain, David. I don't want to know what's going on. <laughs> Thank you very much. But, yeah, are you intrigued? Very intrigued. Yeah, I mean, this is undoubtedly, and I'm not overrating this, it's piqued my interest. Okay. All right. Well, the first major strides were made by, as is so often the case, the U.S. military. A lot of innovation stemmed there. And as David explains here, this is how it all started. There's a program in the U.S. military called DARPA, which has spent billions of dollars developing this, all around the idea of how do you use neuroscience to make warfighters better. And so that's one of the first use cases. And so the the first work was done with military snipers uh, for a lot of reasons, one of which is everybody has to shoot a gun in the military. And, you know, it's very easy to say here's someone good or not. And so the whole idea is can we figure out how to use neuroscience to measure the brain of these experts figure out what makes their brain better than the other and then figure out how to train it. So they started and they just scanned the brains of 100 of the best snipers in the military and compared it to novices using AI. And what they discovered is, you know, just like we were talking about in golf, the expert snipers, right before they pull a trigger, their brain goes into a state that they call the zone or a flow state. And when you're in that state, you can you can make the shot. Things like the target gets better, all of the distractions go away, time disappears, and you kind of enter this zone. Almost in a meditative state. It's a very almost meditative, but there's regions of the brain that are very active. And all snipers, they experience this. You just kind of enter this world. And I know you as a golfer have had that moment well, putting, right? Tiger we, Woods, you see it. I mean, he yeah. was the master at getting into that zone and staying that, in That's it. right. He And he did all of the things you need to do to get there. And so they measured this in the brain and they're like, oh my gosh, I can take a picture of the brain. And it's like, this part's working, this part isn't. And then they took the novices and their brain was, a, you know, it was just a mess. They, there, there were all sorts of parts of the brain chattering that had no business doing it. And so they were like, okay, now we have a picture of the zone. We can measure it. And so that's just like a sleep monitor or, you know, an aura ring. Like they, now you can measure the zone the same way you can measure a heart rate or the number of steps you take. So now the question is, how do you use technology to help the novice get to the expert state better? So the second thing they did is they invented something called a neurofeedback device. And there's going to be a lot of these out in the market soon. It's essentially, uh, they did it as a kind of a high-tech sweatband. So it had sensors in it. And, you know, it's just measuring your brain and figuring out if you're in the zone or not. And with the snipers, they attached it to a, a haptic motor. So it goes onto the collar. And... The way it works is you're not in the zone, it's buzzing on your neck. As you get in, the buzzing goes away. So it's neurofeedback, right? And they had the novices practice with this. And because of what's called neuroplasticity, with just a few hours of practice, their brain learned how to get into the zone. They moved 80% of the way up the learning curve toward being experts. And it's a In what of time training. frame? Uh, four weeks with 10 minutes a day of practice, three times a week. It was two hours of training. Oh, so obviously, geez. you know what I said then? 
Get me on that putting green, David, and get me in that zone. I want to be whole, I want to be pouring putts in from all over the place. I want to be the next Tiger Woods of the men's open uh, circuit. I am keen to know what you told David because he did yeah. make out as if you were a five-time major winner there, Rob. How soon in the conversation said, did you bring it up? I said I had a vague background in the sport of golf, you know, and he, he looked at me and went, "Well, you're definitely not a pro, but he's made you sound like one." Well, yeah, I'll, I'll be popping that on. The- my show reel but yeah I mean it is fascinating stuff and we're just scratching the surface very nascent technology right now this tech is very much the preserve of the absolute elite whether it, it whether it's military whether it's you know the Sport. uber rich sports yeah. will it make its way to the mass market David is convinced it will it's making its way into a lot of industries so I'll give you an example in the video gaming industry video game manufacturers are now building headsets that include brain monitoring because it's going to make the video gaming experience better. This is the kind of the metaverse thing, right? And so what will happen, and I think it's, what, three to five years from now, is seamlessly when you play a video game, you'll put something on your head, your brainwaves will be monitored, they're going to be using that to impact the game, you'll have information about it, you'll be able to get neurofeedback. We're working with the military, in the Air Force in the United States, they're putting headsets in where you monitor the brain, and, you know, it's it's just kind of happening in mm-hmm. a very natural way. So I think, and, you know, Apple just came out with a device which is starting to do that. I, I just think that as you're in the metaverse, as you're, you know, functioning, doing software engineering, having this brain monitoring, knowing where you are, being able to get feedback and training is just going to be part of how we live. I think there is so much consumer demand, it's inevitable that this is just going to be pervasive right. rather than priced just for the elite. So, Chris, would you be happy knowing that your brain is being monitored the entire time? In some situations... Uh, undoubtedly, I'd like the option of it. I would hate if the bosses are listening to this and they hook me up to yeah. every single day. Cause be out of a Chris job. McCartney's fog score has been nine for four days on the bounce. <laughs> fog score has been up for a week. As well. Zero visibility on Robert Greenfield's radar. It's foggy all the way through, exactly. and it's not set to clear at 11 a.m. or even later than that. <laughs> We've had a text message from Mac. Thank you so much for this, uh, Mac. Saying that uh, he, I think it's a he, is a physician. Over here in the United Arab Emirates, uh, and Mark is pointing out that use this neurostimulation uh, to battle depression and with the treatment of addiction as well. So it does seem that parts, at least, mm. of what we're discussing has seeped its way in to kind of everyday life. Yeah, and, and we mentioned the military and what the research they were doing there. We mentioned sport as well, where a lot of US teams are doing research into how optimizing neuro performance will lead to enhanced sporting performance. So we talked about physically how it's very hard to eke out an advantage now. You need a physical specimen to come along, a Michael Phelps or a Usain Bolt. Athletically, it's hard to gain an edge. But with neuroperformance, NBA teams are looking into a part of the brain called visual processing, as David expands on here. Visual processing speed is what, you know, what it sounds like. It's how fast can your brain process visual information? You know, you, take, you can measure, like... Um, how long does it take to recognize something if a ball is moving? How long does it take for you, your brain to predict where it's going? Right? And it's just it's, it's how fast you do that the same way as how fast you run. Right? Mm. And so there's been a lot of research where you know, 
in basketball, you can measure how fast is someone, how fast do they process visual information? How does that correlate to performance on the court? Turns out it's like directly correlated. You see that in soccer as well, right? Because if you can anticipate the ball faster, you can react more quickly, right? And so in basketball, it, the number of assists and steals is directly correlated to this. You can, for a professional athlete, you can double visual processing speed. And if you do that, it's got an immediate impact on performance. And so in basketball, everybody's measuring and training that because it's just like, why wouldn't you? Mm. And so sports and the military were probably the first two to take that in. And so we can do that in a lot of areas. You can double visual processing speed. You can triple learning speed. Right, Because if you can figure out what – there's three things in the brain you can measure that are associated with learning. One of them is uh, attention, whether you're paying attention. One is emotional engagement. And one is what's called cognitive workload. Right, And those are all things you measure about the brain. If you optimize those, you learn information at about three times the speed you retain it. If you're not paying attention, if you're not emotionally engaged, if it's either too hard or too easy, nothing comes in. Five years from now, if you're a student, we'll be able to have you learn whatever, like two or three times as quickly as you do today. With the, right, And if you look at your reaction, that's why it's going to be pervasive. He did stress that this technology is still in its nascent stage, but he also cited the legendary quarterback, Tom Brady, who said that 40% of his training during the final years of his career was cognitive. And that tallies with his kind of ability to anticipate gameplay as well. That's it. Uh, You know, he he does things not by half, or at least he did, Tom Brady, the TB12 method. He puts a lot of stock in that. At the age of 40 plus, he was still getting the job done. Mm. It was unheard of what he's done as a quarterback. So this, this kind of, a lot of this rings absolutely true. Yeah. And he told me that the app most of these athletes use is called Brain HQ. Is it readily it. available? You can it's download. readily available. Brain HQ. So I wanted to, he's got nothing to do with that, by the way. He's not pushing that app. He just told me that that was the one they go for. So I wanted to get a clear picture of what the landscape for this technology is like right here as we stand today in June 2023. Where are we at? The consumer applications that are out there are not very good. You know, the, the, I mean, there's a few people who've tried to build consumer applications, but it's still too complicated and too expensive. So right now, the people who are using it are the elite, the, the sports teams and the financial trading firms and, you know, the, you know, elite military. Because for them, you know, if it's a little ugly equipment and it's really expensive, they'll do it because having the edge matters. And this is very classic. But right? they so, themselves are still just scratching the surface of what it's capable of. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, just like all technology, you know, so I've been running my company, Optius, for four years. Our ability to read the brain in these four years has probably improved, whatever, 500-fold in four years because of AI and stuff. I mean, we are – but you know, this is happening everywhere. I mean, if you think about AI, three months go by and it becomes five times as powerful. You know, it's it's growing at a rate – none of us can make sense of. So yeah, the the technology is improving at a breathtaking rate as the costs are coming down. And so we are we are as you say just scratching the surface, but it's not like you have to wait 20 years to, you know, get below that surface. It's like every 3 months the technology is more powerful than it was before. So things are hurtling along at yep. a pretty rapid rate. And, uh, you know, ultimately, this is 
not just about measuring your brain, but also, as he mentioned in that article at the beginning, eventually this will manifest itself in technology that allows you to artificially alter your cognitive state. So that obviously creates a bit of an ethical Pandora's box, mm. to say the least. I mean, think about that. Does that, if you're talking about performance enhancing drugs, Chris, what about cognitive enhancing mm equipment, whatever you want yeah. to call it. Is that fair? Is that, is that an unfair advantage, gaining a mental advantage, not just in sports, but in business, in education? How does David feel about that? I think it's fair to say all of us, whether it's me or whether it's the guys in the generative AI space or genetic engineering, everybody's thinking about ethics a lot. And there's two reasons for that. One of them is it's just kind of obvious that this could be incredibly good or incredibly problematic for the world what we're developing. But the second thing is we're all old enough to have seen what happened with social media. Mm. I mean, I remember in the early days of social media, there was this promise that it was going to make the world a better place. And there's all these articles from Wired Magazine saying, once social media comes in, it's going to, it's going to create a broad universal community and it's going to enhance relationships. And if you look at what's happened, I mean, it's done some good things, but it's been devastating to the world, right? It's created more division, right? There are so many ways in which it has been used creating immense wealth for companies like Facebook, right now Meta, but not something you want to have as your legacy for having created, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you build a generative AI system, you build something where you can read and improve the brain, right? Of course, you're going to say, well, wow, this, this could have a really... This could be incredibly beautiful for the world, right? It could help people be happier. It could help you elevate your consciousness. It can help you learn faster. But there's all sorts of other things you could imagine which wouldn't be so good. And so what the industry has done right now is we're, we're pretty much trying to self-regulate. And I think you're seeing that in the AI world as well. So every major company, we, we're part of a, kind of an ethics group at a an organization called IEEE. I'm fortunate the guy, our chief science officer, chaired that group one year. Um, you know, and we're, we're doing a lot of stuff when we're running the companies to try to do everything we can to make sure that it levels the playing field instead of, you know, expanding the difference. So, for example, 10% of our profits go into pro bono things to try to elevate young students. Right. Right. And, and I mean, I like to think that the new tech world has learned from social media and is really trying to help. And you can see, you can see efforts in the AI world to police itself, but you can also see i mean it's that's how technology is mm. right do you think we've learned our lesson from social media you know, i'm not so sure we have i think we've learned nothing personally some of us have the language <laughs> is fascinating with these people yeah. these days self-regulating that's yeah. a concern the industry yeah. is self-regulating itself yeah no one's no one's really controlling anything and then there's always that feeling that no one's able to control anything so it's a runaway freight train you and, can't stop it and then as we've seen, some of these top tech bosses are just wiping their hands off it and going, I'm out. I've yeah, and that, exactly. that's what worries me is, is mm. what do you then leave?
when the people have the awakening and they're like, no, I can't deal with it. it scares me. Yeah. So <laughs> I wanted to get a sense of how this is going to be rolled out. And David did stress, although he's worked in tech his whole career, he's never been good at predicting the future. But I wasn't <laughs> going to let him get, get away with that. I wanted to know. David, paint me a picture. Let's go sci-fi. There's going to be a bunch of what are called form factors. And a form factor is, you know, it's like, what does the thing look like? So there's going to be... Like, you're wearing headphones right now, right? So five years from now, those headphones are going to monitor what's going on in your brain. And so you're, and it's going to look like a headphone, but there's going to be these little sensors, and it's going to be collecting data, and then, you know, that'll be connected to whatever the new version of the iPhone is. And, of course, that'll be a very different thing. And you'll be able to look on that the same as you do now and look at your Instead, you can in, look at your heart rate, but you can also look at information about your brain. You'll be able to play games to train your brain to get there. If you want to get into a learning stage, you'll push a button. All of a sudden, you're going to be in a slightly different state. But the truth is, that's only the beginning, because what's more likely to happen is you're not going to be sitting doing a podcast like this. You're going to actually have some sort of augmented reality. And so as you're doing it, you're going to get enhancements to the experience of the world where you're going to have information flowing, you know, about me. And you'll, you'll be able to sort of see things you can't see right now. Uh, so I actually think as the augmented reality comes, you're no longer going to be just metaverse where it's just virtual reality in, an, in a sort of a, in a new world. But you're also not going to experience the regular world the same way. You're going to have elements of the metaverse here. And so I'm going to be kind of combined with a virtual reality setting, all coupled with information about your brain that's kind of feeding what's coming to you. And it's just going to be, it's going to be not what you expect. It's going to just be like you put on your, your like augmented reality glasses to do the podcast and... And you're going to do it because you like it better and it's because it's more valuable and you're going to walk down the street and it'll show you information about what you want. And you're going to be like, I don't know how I ever lived without this augmented reality <laughs> stuff. So it's, imagine like interviewing, I'm interviewing you for the first time and I'm, I'm being fed. All the information about me. Yeah. Yeah. To, in the glasses. The, the way I would liken it would be, and again, call me an old fashioned, call me old fashioned or a traditionalist, but change of ends in an ebb and flow of a tennis match. I hate <laughs> right? the idea yeah. of a Novak Djokovic who is brilliant at working out his opponent. Yeah. You know, he is, despite the fact I don't necessarily like the bloke. <laughs> uh, you know, I, the idea of a tennis player able to pop on a set, zone in help him or her get back in the zone to then come out after a change of ends. I would consider that cheating. Exactly, I, so I would like, I. Yeah. So would I. I like the idea of the individual yeah. trying to work her out for themselves. But you've got to work with what you've got physically and mentally. Correct. You can't get a leg up physically. We've already decided that that's unfair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But why should you be able to get a leg up mentally? But anyway, I've got, we're, no, we're, I've got no problem training it. I'm just sure. seeing the match itself. The yeah, idea that you on pop the on the goggles or mm, the sensors, it's too much for me. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'll ask you guys, horrified or excited about this both. brave yeah. new world of neuroperformance? Definitely enhanced a bit of both for me. Cognitive if it's thinking. harnessed correctly, if it's controlled, Rob, I'm all for it. But the fear is it will be able to run amok. Mm. I, th I think it's inevitable, which, is, which scares me. But yeah. again, if it can be manipulated the right way then it would be better for so us all I did have a few further questions for him does this tech simply hand even more 
advantages to the already very rich? That was question number one. Because it's expensive, right? What chance does the man on the street have? I was kind of saying, David, any chance? Uh, In the sporting realm, the rich teams will get stronger. The poor teams will be cut ever further adrift than they already are. So what what did he have to say about that? It will skew toward and then away from. I think nowadays, mobile phones have leveled the playing field rather than skewing it toward the rich. Right? It's not just like the rich have mobile phones. Nowadays, everybody's got you know an iPhone or something like this. Nowadays, everybody can download the same apps, and it has leveled the playing field. I, I, I'm not pretending this is kind of an ethical thing. It's a commercial thing. The fact of the matter is you can make more money as Apple if you sell it to everybody for a low price than if you just limit it to the elite. Right, And if you do limit it to the elite, someone else is going to come in and sell it to everybody. So that's his thoughts on whether it will widen the gap or he thinks narrow it. What about mental health, mental disorders? What impact can neuroperformance have on that? And David reveals his own personal challenges as he insists that the tech can have a transformative impact. The brain is a plastic organ, which means it can rewire itself with training. That's the whole reason you can make the brain process information faster or whatever, because it's, it's like a muscle. You can train it. And so if you take someone who's autistic like me and you train them in social skills, over time you can rewire your brain to get there. As our technology accelerates that, it has a huge potential impact on a lot of these kind of mental health disorders. One of the really, I think, inspiring things about my field is it's giving this opportunity to say, you know, who you are when you're whatever, five years old or 20 years old is not your destiny. You can rewire that with the right kind of tools. And so, yeah, I, I think... I think that the promise for mental health is extraordinarily positive. Now, you know, you listed a whole bunch of things that's going to have more of an impact in some than others, right? So there's certain things like, you know, whatever, schizophrenia, where to my knowledge, it's a little harder. But stuff like you said, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, or ADD, or autism, yeah. And by the way, I, I had mild autism like the the guys who are very extreme probably would not be as potent but like there's science showing that you can take alzheimer's disease and reverse it again only moderate but you can you can take with brain training people who can't function because of alzheimer's and you can restore cognitive function to the point where they work so that's his thoughts on what impact this could have on mental health, mm. mental disorders, disabilities. What about education, young people? What does the future look like for them using this technology? Right now, if you're a student and you have to learn something, you're given a book, you read it, you read the same book. It doesn't matter how your brain processes information. Five years from now, you're in an augmented reality, immersive environment. The information coming to you is being driven by AI. You're monitoring the brain. You're monitoring AI movements. It's personalized to you to help you learn in the way you learn best, keeping the information coming at your level so it keeps you engaged, but it's not too hard. It'll triple your learning speed. It'll make it a much more enjoyable, immersive environment. That You know, you laugh, but there's money going into it. That is a reality about where we can go. And if it becomes affordable enough, that's not how just the rich learn, but that's just how schools will work. And it's, it's a very beautiful promise. 
You can find out more information on optios.ai. That's O-P-T-I-O-S dot A-I. And David has said to me that he's happy to communicate via email. If you're interested in discussing it with him in person, you can email him at david at optios.ai as well. Overall thoughts, Chris? Uh, I'm impressed with him very much. So, uh, again, we've said it's a $15 billion industry already. It's only going one way, and that is up. Uh, We will be hearing an awful lot more, I'm sure, on that particular industry in the coming years, if not the coming months. I mean, he keeps talking about in five years. For goodness sake, it's it's inevitable, as Roy said. It's inevitable. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Big thanks to David Buck. Optios.ai. Massive thanks to David for popping in. And hopefully his visit to the Middle East is productive for him. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 